Warning, this episode contains some strong language. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Trunk, reading the stories that didn't make it. I'm Hilary B. Bisniecks. On today's show, uh, we have a very special guest and neighbor, Sharon Shu. Uh, Sharon is another Oakland-based writer and good friend and neighbor, and we are recording live in my uh, dining room today. So, Sharon, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, and it was so pleasant to just walk over here this morning. I know, it's amazing. We Right before the show, I was saying, you know, we save a whole bunch of time by not having to do, like, syncing up the audio or any of the other normal podcast business that we're both used to in doing podcasts with friends who don't live in the same city or state or time zone. Or sometimes continent. Yeah, or sometimes continent. All all of that. So yeah, um, Sharon, I'm really excited to have you on the show. We've known each other for an indeterminate amount of time. Time is fake. What is time? Yeah. I don't know. I met you through the first guest of this show, Sarah Gailey, good friend, former Oaklander. Yes. And yes, it's super great to have you on the show. Uh, Sharon, you're going to be reading Grown Up Business, is that correct? Yes. All right. Is there anything that we need to know about the story before you start? Um, I'll just give a slight content note that it does touch on a theme of postpartum depression. So if that is going to be difficult for anyone, just turn off the podcast. Uh, I won't be offended. Um, Yeah, but that's... that's Or skip ahead about 20 minutes. Yeah, that too. Um, But... And, and if that's something that someone's dealing with, I'm really sorry. And I hope you get all the support and, and love that you need. Fantastic. So, yeah. Uh, Ready so when you are. Okay. This is grown-up business. <clears throat> the first time the men in the white coats came, they didn't talk to Timmy. No, not at all, not even a little bit. They came through the door and spoke with Daddy in their whisper voices. Timmy had a whisper voice, too. He used it to count to 20 when he played hide-and-seek with Mummy, and he used it to tell secrets. Their grandma said it wasn't very nice to tell secrets, and he was supposed to use it in the big building with all the dinosaur skeletons where Daddy worked, but he usually forgot. It was hard to remember to use his whisper voice when the ceiling was so high and echoey. Boom, he'd call out to it. Oom, 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 it would call back. Sometimes when he did this, Daddy would make his important face and shush Timmy, but Mummy usually laughed. Mummy almost never shushed Timmy, except one time when he forgot to use his whisper voice with the baby, and the mummy got very mad and forgot to use her whisper voice, too. Timmy was very sorry. He hadn't meant to wake the baby up. He liked the baby so much. When Mummy and Daddy first told him about the baby, they had said that he'd have a sister. She'd be very precious, so he'd need to be very careful with her. Timmy had thought that maybe Sister was a kind of dinosaur that he could have all his own because (laughs) Daddy always told him when they were at the museum to be extra careful with the dinosaurs. Dinosaurs were grown-up business. But then he went to stay with Grandma for three days, and when he came home, he found out that his sister wasn't a dinosaur at all. She had big, squashy cheeks and a bitty nose, and she cried all the time. (laughs) Mummy cried all the time now, too. That was not like Mummy at all. What Timmy liked best about his Mummy was the way she laughed. It wasn't the mean grown-up laugh that sometimes Daddy's boss had, or the way that Grandma laughed with her mouth, but not her whole face, when her sisters came for tea. Mummy's laugh made Timmy feel like he just had a big, warm bowl of the soup with the letters in it. When Mummy laughed, Timmy always wanted to laugh, too. Mm -hmm. So when the men in the white coats came, Timmy knew they were there to help Mummy find her laugh again. He scooched behind one of the living room curtains. This was his favorite spot in Hide Unseek, though half the time the dust tickled his nose and made him sneeze and the mummy would find him and watch Daddy open the door. The two men were tall and they wore crisp white coats with big pockets on the front. Timmy could only tell them apart because one held a briefcase like the one Daddy carried to work and the other one had a funny kind of necklace around his neck. The necklace was shiny and had two curvy things like Triceratops horns on top. When he'd gone with Mommy to have his shots, a nice lady had listened to his heart with a necklace like that. Doctor, Timmy heard his daddy say. Daddy shook hands with one of the men and then the other. Doctor. They went upstairs and stayed in Mommy and Daddy's room for a long time. And when they came down, both men looked at where Timmy was peeking from around the, cor- uh, around the curtain, but neither of them said a word to him. That night, Mommy came downstairs and made meatloaf for dinner. She hadn't come downstairs since Mommy and Daddy had brought his sister home. Meatloaf was Timmy's favorite, and he'd missed it. 
Grandma had come over last week and made some meatloaf, but hers didn't taste the same as Mummy's. Daddy had said that was because the main ingredient in Mummy's meatloaf was love. <laughs> Timmy watched her closely tonight to see when she put the love in, but he must have missed it. Maybe it was a secret, even though people weren't supposed to have secrets. Mummy smiled a lot during dinner, though she didn't laugh. Not at all, not even a little bit. Still, Timmy thought that maybe this meant she was feeling better. Will the doctors bring your laugh back, Mummy? He asked. Mummy and Daddy both looked surprised when he said that, and Mummy frowned a little. Timmy hadn't meant to make her frown. Daddy laughed too loudly, as if that would somehow make Timmy not see Mummy's frown. What a thing to say, buddy. Let your mother eat in peace. Daddy gave Mummy a look. It was the kind of look that he gave strangers at the museum when Timmy forgot his whisper voice. The kind of look that meant he and Timmy would have a talk later. Though Timmy never knew why it was called that when only Daddy got to talk. Timmy finished his meatloaf quietly, though now it didn't taste as delicious. Maybe the love only worked when Mummy was laughing. When it was time to go to bed, Timmy carefully kissed his sister on the forehead. She smelled very nice, and she made a small huff-huff noise that Timmy liked much better than her crying. She only had one eyebrow. Timmy thought that was strange, but when a patch of hair on the back of her head had fallen out earlier, Mummy had said that was normal, so maybe this was another normal thing. Mummy and Daddy didn't seem to notice that the baby had lost an eyebrow, and they always said that if they weren't worried about something, Timmy shouldn't be worried either. Then Mummy said to stop bothering the baby and come get tucked in a bed. It had been so long since Mummy had tucked him in that this felt like an extra special treat. She knew exactly how he liked his pillows plumped up and how to snuggle Mr. Rabbit into his arms. As they left the kitchen, Timmy looked back at his sister. Daddy had picked her up, and he was smiling with all his teeth. Mummy stayed upstairs all the next day. Daddy said that Timmy had to use his whisper voice again, and when Timmy stomped his foot and asked why, Daddy sent him outside to play, even though it was too wet and cold. Daddy didn't know how to tuck Timmy's mittens into his parka sleeves just right to keep the wind out, and he didn't have hot chocolate waiting when he let Timmy back inside. Daddy was on the phone when he opened the door, so Timmy had to untie his own shoes, which was hard because the laces had gotten all wet. He asked Daddy when Mummy was going to wake up. Mummy always helped him with his shoes. Daddy frowned and held up his phone. I'm working on it, okay, buddy? The men in the white coats came back the following day. Timmy was playing in his room down the hall when Daddy brought them upstairs. He sneaked to the doorway and peeked out at them, even though sneaking and peeking were not very nice. <laughs> Daddy was telling the men that they hadn't done what they promised. Daddy's voice was mad. It was very important to him that people kept their promises. As he opened the door in his and Mummy's room, Timmy thought he saw a flash of something green and scaly under the hem of one of the men's coats. He blinked. Daddy, he whispered after the two men had walked inside as Daddy was about to close the door. Daddy jumped a little, then came over and crouched down. Buddy, you startled me. Didn't know you were up here. Timmy looked down and tried to fit his toe into a worn patch in the carpet. Sorry, Daddy, I thought I saw... He looked up. Daddy didn't ever say, I'm putting on my listening ears like Mummy or Grandma did, but he would look people right in the eye when he was paying special attention. He did that now. Daddy, that man has a dinosaur tail, Timmy said, <laughs> all in a rush. Daddy laughed and ruffled his hair. Timmy's face felt hot. He didn't much like having his hair ruffled. Oh, Timmy, I think someone's let his imagination run away with him. These men are doctors. That means they help fix people. But, Daddy, I saw... Daddy put his hands on Timmy's arms. Look, they're here to help Mummy feel better. Don't you want Mummy to feel better? Timmy nodded. Daddy also nodded. That's what I want too, buddy, more than anything in the world. He said it again in his whisper voice, more than anything in the world, and his eyes went far away for a moment. Then he smiled and asked Timmy, will you help by being very quiet while they're in there helping Mummy? Yes. Good boy. Daddy hugged him tight and went into the bedroom. He closed the door softly behind him. Timmy played with his toys for some time. Then he got bored, though Grana always said only boring people got bored. <laughs> and he realized he hadn't heard the baby crying in a little while, so he went to her room. He climbed up on the chair that Mummy sat in when she fed the baby and looked down at his sister in her crib. She still only had the one eyebrow. She was asleep and a line of jewel gleamed softly from the corner of her mouth into the folds of her neck. Timmy reached his hand carefully through the slats of the crib and wiped her mouth with a handful of the light blanket she was wrapped in. He was pretty sure that was right since he'd seen Daddy and Grandma do it before. His sister shifted and cooed and he wiped her mouth again. This time, her bottom lip disappeared. Timmy held his breath. He looked at the cloth in his hand. Maybe this was like when Mummy would wipe off her lipstick after she and Daddy went out for a date. <laughs> but there was nothing on the cloth. He looked back at the baby. She was still sleeping, and the rest of her mouth was gone. 
Timmy scrambled backward off his chair. Daddy, he yelled before turning and smacking into someone. The doctors had come back out of Mummy and Daddy's room. The one he'd run into caught his arm to keep him from falling. And who's this? Daddy's face appeared over the man's shoulder. Oh, that's my son, Timmy. Timmy, you know you're not supposed to yell inside. Remember your whisper voice. Timmy twisted around in the doctor's grip to look at the baby. All the hair on top of her head was gone now, and her other eyebrow vanished as he was watching. Why wasn't Daddy paying attention? He needed to make Daddy see. But Daddy was already walking away with the other doctor, his arm around the doctor's shoulders. Daddy was laughing and thanking him for helping Mommy. The doctor who was holding Timmy looked down at him and smiled. He had too many teeth, and they were all sharp. Now, little boy, your mother will be all better by tomorrow. Isn't that what you wanted, more than anything? Timmy refused to nod at him. It's what your daddy said he wanted, more than anything. The man smiled one more time and let go of Timmy. His tail brushed Timmy's legs as he walked away. The baby rustled in her crib. Heart pounding, Timmy ran to his bedroom and slammed the door behind him. He got into his bed and hid under the covers. He wouldn't come out even when daddy came to get him for dinner, even when daddy promised they could have pizza and watch cartoons. <laughs> he didn't know who to talk to if daddy wasn't listening and mommy was asleep. Maybe Grana could help, but he didn't know how to make the telephone call her. Timmy stayed awake the whole night, listening for a sound from the baby's room that never came. He woke up the next morning in Mummy's arms. She was carrying him down the stairs, and she smelled so nice. Good morning, sleepyhead, she said when she noticed he was awake. You're starting to get too big for this. When they got to the kitchen, Mummy put Timmy in his chair and pulled an apron out of a drawer. Daddy was reading a newspaper while he drank his coffee. His tie tossed over his shoulder to keep it out of his eggs. He was humming a little, and Mummy kept pausing as she made pancakes to kiss him and Timmy. Timmy looked around. The baby's high chair was gone, and so were her rubber placemat and the stack of bibs on the counter. Where's my sister? he asked. Hmm? Daddy dropped his fork and peered around his newspaper. His face looked like a house with no lights on. Mummy stopped stirring and turned around. What sister? she asked. Her voice was floaty, and she looked at Daddy. He gave her a look and a shrug that Timmy didn't understand. A grown-up look. They both laughed, but Daddy was laughing just with his mouth. His eyes weren't laughing. Did you have a dream, honey? Mommy smiled big and bright at Timmy. Daddy smiled, too, with all his teeth. Some of them had gone sharp and pointy. Would you like us to give you a baby sister, Timmy? The end. Woo! Jesus. <laughs> just some early morning... Uh, <laughs> Oh, that was really fun. Thank you. Thank you so much for bringing it on the show and sharing it. Yeah. Um, so you were saying right before we started recording that this was like one of the first things that you wrote when you started writing again. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, you know, sort of as writers, we have journeys into and out of writing and it comes in, comes and goes. Mm -hmm. um, so sort of like... What brought you into the place of writing science fiction and fantasy or brought you into the place of writing it again? Yeah, yeah. So I wrote this story in January of 2016. Looked that up in my spreadsheet before <laughs> we started. And yeah, it was kind of the first fiction I'd written since I was writing copious amounts of like X-Men fan fiction in college. <laughs> uh, which... I, you know, fan fiction, I think, is actually a great way to learn how to write because the immediate feedback and... Absolutely. And so forth. But yeah, I I'd, I'd sort of uh, stopped writing creatively for years and years. Mostly, I think, or particularly when I started grad school. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I know some other people have this experience too, right? Where you're you're producing a certain kind of writing in, in your day job, as it were. But, you know, I'd always been a science fiction fantasy fan, um, always had read a lot of short fiction, and this was probably around the time when uh, I started beta reading for Sarah Gailey, mm -hmm. and they were very much, uh, you know, they're, they're very gracious selves, and, and going like, oh, you know, thank you so much for this feedback, and clearly, you have stories that you <laughs> want to tell. Um, and sort of, you know, prodded me until I thought like, well, yeah, I mean, you know, let's give it a shot. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm trying to remember, I, this was one of those rare stories that kind of came to me all at once and that I, I sat down and just sort of poured out. I'm, I'm usually a very slow writer, mm -hmm. um, both in terms of coming up with ideas and then 
actually writing the stories. Mm-hmm. Um, Mood. Yeah, yeah. So, but but this was one of those that um, I, I think I really got that image first of like a little boy peeking out from behind curtains mm-hmm. um, and not understanding what was happening in his household. Um, so certainly, you know, picking up a bit on, you know, anyone who's had a parent with mental illness or... Mm-hmm really trying to get at that that sense when you're a child um even you know even if your parents are great and very safe and very healthy of of kind of feeling like the world outside is a bit scary or a Mm -hmm. bit beyond uh what you can comprehend for sure yeah so so that was kind of how this story came into being and uh, you know, and then immediately Sarah started poking at me of like, okay, now, now submit it. <laughs> now do the scary part. <laughs> uh, it is interesting that this is like the first thing that you wrote sort of at, I don't want to say at the behest of Sarah, but I mean, with, fair. yeah, with, <laughs> with friendly prodding from a friend and mentor mm-hmm. and the, the reason that I met Sarah initially online was somebody had tweeted out, hey, my friend Sarah Gailey just had their first story published, um, and it was the story Look. <sighs> that terrifying story. Is a terrifying story. About uh, a creepy baby. <laughs> about a creepy baby. And it's, it's funny to me that it's like, oh, creepy babies were in the air. I, yeah, apparently. I don't, I don't know what it was about January 2016. But But it worked out, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, So yeah, that's just, that's very funny to me as like a, you know, like a a funny weird thing, not a funny ha-ha necessarily, but... um, And I think this story maybe starts starts at funny ha-ha and then rapidly plunges into funny weird and funny, oh no. Yeah, yeah. Which is... Something that is extremely my jam. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, and I, I think one of the themes I regularly go off of is, here's a stupid joke. Let me turn it into something that's kind of disturbing. Yeah. <laughs> it is. I, I haven't really written any horror since this story, too. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I you know, maybe I was finding my voice and I don't, read a lot of horror because I am the world's largest scaredy cat. Um, <laughs> like when I read something that's even slightly eerie, I'm like, oh, okay, great. I, I guess I shall never sleep again. Yeah. Um, this is just my life now. So so I think it was it, interesting kind of that that was, that was the first story for me in, in that mm-hmm. regard as well, because I, I think what I've written since then has been very different. Yeah. And it is... There, there's like definitely a process of finding your voice and, and a process of like finding what you're interested in writing. Yeah, and I think working up the courage too mm-hmm. to, to do those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it, it really can't be said enough that it is that creating is an act of bravery, mm-hmm. um, and that doing the work to find where you're going is like really something to be commended and it is hard work it is not just like like even i'm i'm not i have not read aragon i don't mean to put christopher paolini on blast but i'm like (laughs) he's the one person i can think of of like you know sort of just like blew onto the scene Mm -hmm. big name even he i'm sure had to go through a process of like, you know, you can you can make whatever valid literary criticisms you want to of those books, and certainly I think somebody who has read them and has read sort of the wider canon of heroic fantasy mm-hmm. can do that, but you still have to find your voice. I know when I started writing as a thing to do other than just like, oh, I have to do a thing for school... It was definitely, like, it took me a little while to sort of ease into stuff because my first things that I wrote outside of any assignment were definitely, like, I didn't really know what urban fantasy was Mm -hmm. in terms of, like, what was being written. I just had this idea of, like, 
this is a thing that probably exists. <laughs> you weren't like, oh, I've created a genre. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Thank, thank goodness I was not that naive. But I was def- like, I'm going to do this thing. But also, like, I'd just gotten, basically just gotten off of reading the entirety of the Discworld from mm-hmm. start to finish. Mm-hmm. Entirety at that time of the Discworld. Uh, this was uh, 2000 and five or six, so there were, you know, a good most of a decade still after that of books to come out, but I was very much, you know, you're you're a teenager and you just kind of do what your, like, your influences do, and so it had snarky and humorous footnotes, Mm -hmm. but, like, teenager snark (laughs) and not, like... Sir Terry Pratchett's Yeah, yeah. There, there are worse models. There are, there are definitely worse models, but it was... That is something that floats around on the internet because I have not gone through the effort of taking it down. Because at this point I'm just like, here's an Easter egg. You can find something really terrible that I wrote a long time ago. Something to look for, podcast listeners. Yep. I am not going to drop any hints as to where to find this, mm-hmm. but... If you were on the internet in 2005, you probably have some guesses. Yeah, I'm I'm not going to tell anybody what my pseudonym was when I was writing the copious amounts of X-Men fanfiction, nor where to find it, but it is also, I believe, still still on the internet somewhere, because the internet is forever. Yep, the internet never forgets. Mm -hmm. Listeners, the internet never forgets. This is, (laughs) if you can take two things away from this podcast... It's that, and the time is fake. <laughs> Just dropping, dro- dropping knowledge bombs this morning. Yeah. So, um, something you said earlier about sort of the modes of writing mm-hmm. really struck me, and I know that Alex Rowland had some things to say about this when they were on the podcast back in October, but that there is, like, being in academia land has a certain amount of effect on, like, how you do things. And I wondered if you could talk some more about that, because as a person who has a master's in humanities, Mm -hmm. like, you have experience in sort of both sides of, basically, I am writing for some sort of living. Yeah, yeah. I will make a small correction that I did not receive my master's, because the master's was not built into my PhD program, which I, I left. So did some of the... Apologies, programs. Dr. Shu. No, 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 no. Also did not get my PhD. So okay. just, yeah, finished all the coursework, did not write the dissertation. That's fair. To, it seems like a lot of work. It, it was, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, certainly writing, writing in an academic sense, I, I feel like on the one hand it gave me a lot of tools because... The program I was in, I mean, it was a PhD for English literature, so mm-hmm. certainly engaging in really incredible literature that's come to us and learning to take it apart um, and kind of think about why it works and how it works. And I think particularly the years that I spent teaching in my department were mm-hmm. really helpful for that because you're with students who, to varying degrees of, you know, even interest in, in literature. Oh, yeah. Um, but that moment, that sparks for them, right, where you're like, oh, something about this paragraph that we just read, like, really grabbed the whole class. And, and so that was, in, in some ways, it's a great crash course in composition. Mm-hmm. Um, it also becomes even more terrifying, I think, yeah. because you're like, oh, I've just... Yeah, just spent my morning reading George Eliot. No big right. deal. I, I will never be able to write like this. So I, I might as well just lie down and, and cry. Yeah. Um, so there's that. Um, but and I think switching switching the modes of of being with that lens of like everything that's written can be pulled apart. Um, mm-hmm. Even even when it's a kind of admiring like oh this is why this works or this these were the ideas that this author was engaging in and so forth right um but it makes you i think it makes you really aware that oh people once i put this in the world people can do that to to my writing mm-hmm. certainly learning how to be brief was difficult <laughs> i think a lot of early writing that i sent to sarah was they would be like this is great. The story starts on page 10. Yeah. You just actually started there instead of all the throat clearing. And um, I'm sure my advisors kind of have that same feedback <laughs> of like, this chapter is fine, but you don't really get into your idea until further on. So 
that's something that I've I've had to kind of untrain myself from, mm-hmm. uh, even professionally in my pivot from, you know, academia into to working in content marketing. Right. Um, just always be briefer. But I, I think huge also, mood. Yeah, yeah. I think it also gave me the gift though of um, when I started sending out creative writing. I I found myself. I'm not going to say impervious to rejection because mm-hmm. that's, that's never the case. It, it is personal, but. I, I think there was this way in which the creative writing was this fun hobby I had on the side mm-hmm. and getting rejected by publications was like, okay, yeah, I'll just send it to the next one. And, you know, I, I tried to view it as like, if I got a personal rejection, then that was actually kind of a victory. Right. Somebody was telling me what was wrong with the story or why they couldn't connect. And it just didn't feel as fraught because I'd spent so many years in a profession where you know, you go into your conference and you present your paper and you're like, okay, now, now I'm Uh wide open, like just have at it, shoot me. Yeah. And I always really struggled with how much uh, in academia, often it felt like your intellectual worth was equivalent to whatever ideas you were pulling or Mm -hmm. putting forward. Um, And so, yeah, so strangely enough, I think that that was helpful early on when I was getting a lot of rejections uh, yeah. for my stories to just kind of keep going. Yeah. That is something I think especially before I went to college for creative writing and then like even through the middle maybe even into the end of the program where that was like still a struggle that like nobody should feel bad if they take a rejection hard because we're in communities of writers who have been doing this for I think the Slack I'm on has like probably well over a century, maybe two centuries of like cumulative writing mm-hmm. experience. And the number of rejections that comes out of that, that still people who are like, you know, hardened, grizzled, experienced Sorry, writers yeah. <laughs> still like we have channels where you can go and say, hey, I just got this rejection and I'm taking it pretty hard. And everyone's like, yeah. That makes sense. Like, sometimes sometimes it just comes on a bad day. Sometimes mm-hmm. you get three of them in a day. Sometimes it's that market that you really thought, like, you know, the story is the perfect fit and I've been waiting for them to open for months. And, yeah. You know, or, or yeah. like, sometimes you get a nasty rejection and that that's always hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We don't speak of those, but... <laughs> no. <laughs> but they do, unfortunately, happen sometimes mm-hmm. and, like... You know, and, and that's all part of the process, and it, it's not to say it's easy, but it's something that happens, and it's something that I think it's it's important to have that understanding of you are not weird for having this reaction, you are not bad for having this reaction, mm-hmm. like, everybody, like, I'm sure Stephen King gets turned down sometimes. Yeah, like, everyone gets rejected, even your most favorite, most looked up to authors. Yeah. They still get rejected sometimes, and it's probably hard for them, too. So it's, yeah, it's definitely, like, I don't want anyone to take away from our conversation, like, oh, no, I, I cried over a rejection yesterday and I'm doing it wrong. Like, mm-hmm. that is a completely valid yeah. response. No, no. You cried over a rejection yesterday. You are doing it right. Yeah. <laughs> that is, like, last month's guest, Premi Muhammad, you will see her often on Twitter, you know, endless shit posting. But also, hey, I got a rejection, let's eat some cake. Hey, I got an acceptance, let's eat some cake. Like, just eat some cake, you deserve it. You've been doing, you've been doing work. Cake is always good. Yeah, yeah, and I think it, you know, often we are only public about our successes, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, so happy to announce I have a story in such and such. But, yeah, maybe as a field, more transparency around, oh, hey, yeah, I got a rejection today. Yeah. I'm going to send it out tomorrow, but... Um, making that a lot more visible could be, I think, especially helpful for early career writers. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I don't think, I know that is one of the reasons that I started this podcast was Mm -hmm. to give transparency about that and to say, like, hey, sometimes you really love a story and you just have to put it away. Yeah. Um, And, you know, sometimes you start writing a story and you realize it's just not working and you have to put it away and, like, these are all valid things. Sometimes you send a story out until hell won't have it. Right. And you still end up, you know, either you just can't find a good market for it, you can't find a good way to get it out into the world, or you just realize, like, sometimes 
you know, I'm I'm not submitting stories anymore that I wrote six, seven years ago because they don't represent me anymore. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. that's like that's something that's hard to accept, I think, early on when you're like, you know, you put a hundred hours into a story. Mm-hmm. Like that's a a considerable chunk of time. And maybe you only have a couple stories mm-hmm. to send out, right? I think I think learning when to say like, it's time to put this one away and let me keep working on new ideas um, is, is definitely part of the, that learning process. Especially, yeah. I mean, like I mentioned earlier, I write very slowly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of had to reconcile myself to, like, yeah, I just, I don't think I'm ever going to be one of those writers who has, you know, ten stories to, to sub at any given moment. And, right. Uh, which, which sometimes makes it even harder to, like, let go of that one precious baby story. Yeah, um, for sure. But, you know, just got to do it. It's okay that life comes in, in stages and in waves, and sometimes you can write a story real quick. Like, sometimes there's just, like, like the muse is just banging down your door. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the muse is on holiday, and you still have to write because that's your practice. Sometimes you just don't have the mental or emotional or physical energy to write, and all of that is okay. All yeah. of that's valid. Yeah, I think learning to forgive yourself mm-hmm. as a writer, and I say you, and I mean me, learning <laughs> 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 to forgive myself as a writer um, in the months and even years where I wasn't producing anything, really, mm-hmm. uh, or learning what forms were, were better suited for those times was important. And yeah, I've just, I've just knowing, like, you know, one day it's it's going to come back. Not panicking of, like, oh, I, I guess I will never write again. Yeah. Uh, because I've I've gone through this trauma or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, like, the, the words do come back, but sometimes it takes time. Yeah. And sometimes you, you know, you got to write some poems first or got to write some nonfiction. Yep. Got to write some fan fiction. You got to just, like, write some post-it notes mm-hmm. or something the number of times where I've gone to my partner and said, like, oh, I'm, I feel like shit because I have not written in X amount of time. What if I never write again? Mm-hmm. Like, I've written again. Yeah. That's what happens. Like, it's, it's hard, it sucks, and it's not forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you don't write, you're still okay. Yeah. That's still fine. Creative people will always create. Yeah. Whether they change medium, you know, maybe you started off writing and then you had a year where you just wanted to bake really elaborate cupcakes. Mm-hmm. And then you had a year where you started a podcast and then you have another year where you write again. I mean, it, it. I think that is really something that I want everyone to hear is like if you are a creative person and you are in a lull, like you will create again one way or another. Yeah, absolutely. It's, part of, it's who you are. Yeah. And some just like get into the honesty zone here. Like my life this year, there was a lot of turmoil in it. And like I changed jobs and I bought a house, which is a lot of work. Turns out. (laughs) (laughs) Turns out buying a house is A, terrible, B, difficult, and C, once you've bought it, suddenly you're responsible for a building. And surprise. Yeah. Gotta like. Oh, I I can't write this weekend because I have to fix the thermostat. Oh, I I uh, have to paint the garage. Oh, it's never ending. Right. Yeah. Um, and it, writing takes energy. Creating takes energy. Yeah, right? absolutely. You, I think it, it also, when your life gets really full, you often lose time to do the things that fill the well. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like whenever I'm in a writing slump these days, I, I actually... Often I'm like, oh, I need to read more nonfiction. Mm-hmm. I need to read more essays by really amazing thinkers because those are the things that kind of get my brain going into that space of like, oh, what if? You know, like, yeah, Toni Morrison was critiquing capitalism in, you know, 1970, whatever. Mm-hmm. And something about this essay is sparking this idea that feels relevant. But yeah, making time to fill the well can be really difficult when you're a whole adult with a job and a mortgage and other responsibilities. Yeah. And even if you don't have a job or a mortgage or like everybody has responsibilities to some extent, you have to like keep your body going Mm -hmm. and sometimes that's enough. Yeah. Like you are more important than your output. And that's, like, that idea is so contrary to what capitalism tells us. Mm -hmm. 
which is why capitalism is bad and wrong. Yep. If you're taking three three <laughs> lessons out of this today, listeners, it's I had a first lesson, and time is fake, and capitalism sucks balls. There we go. Yeah. Podcast done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bet you didn't think we were going to get political. Mm, then you don't know us very well. Yep. <laughs> Art is inherently political. Lesson four. Yeah, yeah. So the the idea of like being in a master's program or being mm-hmm. in like being in a job where you have to create content. Yeah. I think makes refilling the well and also drawing from the well a lot harder. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that the times when sometimes the times when I've been most able to write are the times when even if I have a job that's keeping me very busy, it is something that is doing, like, engaging a totally different part of my brain. That I worked for a season in a bicycle shop repairing bikes, Mm -hmm. and, like, there was problem solving, there was stuff that I needed to think about, but it's turning completely different gears in my head, and so I was just, like, I could just go into work, think with my hands, and then to and from on my commute, like, I could just think about what am I going to write? Like what's what's happening next in the novel I'm working on right now or whatever. And like it's it's important to understand like you're not writing doesn't come out of a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Art doesn't come out of a vacuum and you need to be able to fill that space. Like I've been frank several times on this podcast before I haven't I think written any fiction this year and it's been a struggle for me sometimes to like come to peace with that, mm-hmm. but I've also been creating a podcast, and like I think even without all the external turmoil of jobs and housing and like all the million things that happen of being a person in capitalism in 2019, like creating a podcast is great. I love it, and it's hard work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it and it's going to take up a lot of that creative part of your brain. Yeah, um, that you know maybe otherwise would be feeding you story ideas or sentences or scenarios. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and like to your point about refilling the well of of reading nonfiction, like I'll do that sometimes. I'll read. You know, tech journalism is a lot of, you know, A, it helps for my job doing technology, and B, the stuff that they're writing about now, like, I couldn't have imagined five years ago. Yeah. Let alone, you know, 15 almost years ago when I started writing Mm -hmm. as, like, a, a thing I wanted to do. And it's just crazy. And the other thing is, like, both as a writer and as a podcaster, like, just listen to podcasts. I'm just always listening to podcasts because it informs how I edit the show. Mm-hmm. It brings about new ideas. So it's, you know, it's comedy podcasts, it's fiction podcasts, it's nonfiction podcasts, just all of it. It's all doing things. So you're never, nothing you're doing is wasting time. No, no. You're kind of stuffing it all in and waiting for things to kind of congeal and then float to the surface. I, mm-hmm. I feel like that was a really poorly mixed metaphor. No, but it, it's totally, it's completely what happens. Like, okay, I'm going to get into bad metaphors now. <laughs> it's like doing chemistry without a textbook. Mm-hmm. You just have a lab full of chemicals and the idea that you're just going to pour some things into other things. And like sometimes, sometimes it'll blow up and that sucks. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you'll have to evacuate the building. Yeah. Which is where don't, we get into bad metaphors. Don't actually do this in chem lab. Kids. Yep. <laughs> Please do not. Mm-hmm. But other times, like, you're gonna... Something's gonna float to the surface. Something's gonna come together that really, like, is a solid chunk that you can work with. Yeah. And I think really leaning into the things that you're passionate about, that you care about, will also inform your writing and make it very specific to you, right? I think mm-hmm. as I have in the last few years really started embracing and exploring my identity as an Asian American woman, not really in initially like intending for it to inform my writing at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but just kind of being in this place in my life where I was like, I really want to work through what this means for me and kind of think through experiences that I've had. And then that really started shaping the 
the writing that I was putting out because it was what I was spending my time thinking about and, mm-hmm. and growing a, a kind of expertise on, I suppose. And I mean, incidentally, I think those those were the pieces that started getting picked up yeah. because there was maybe something much more solid mm-hmm. behind it. It's, it's the authenticity. Mm-hmm. I think that's happening a lot more and it's sort of like it, it is hard to I think to be an artist is to have hope yes and it's really sometimes really hard to have hope in 2019 in uh, a world not just America but like the whole world where fascism is on the rise and there's yeah. all this terrible stuff going on but at the same time, at least for me, I feel like a lot of those experiences make me reevaluate what's important to me. Mm-hmm. And like it, uh, it's, I think, more vital to be exploring our identities, to be to really like explore, you know, what it is to be an Asian American, what it is to how what it is to be like a white man in America and like how you can exist when that is a symbol of fear and hate to so many people and like exploring you know I've I've used in the last last year I used a lot of my writing cycles exploring like what an anti-fascist anti-capitalist world could look like and Mm -hmm. like those are the sorts of things and like exploring using my writing to explore queer identities and like I couldn't do that five years ago yeah yeah no it's definitely I mean I I think I stopped writing for like a year maybe after the 2016 election it was I it was hard to find the hope yeah but I think yeah as as I started existing in more political spaces as I, you know, started being more open about <laughs> my, my politics, like mm-hmm. with people in my life and really, you know, gaining hope from organized action mm-hmm. um, and seeing what my comrades were doing. I, I think that was where one, like I, ideas started coming in more and, and where I really gave myself permission to use my writing to to explore and to defend certain identities mm-hmm. and to I don't know I mean I think in some ways it's like planting a flag right of like we're here yeah <laughs> and we've been here yeah and you don't get to not listen to like our our stories anymore mm-hmm. um, and yeah so I think in in that sense I don't I don't know I, I I wonder how how long it would have taken me otherwise to to work up the courage to be like you know what I'm gonna write from a certain this perspective that I that I have um, certainly I think that is also when sending pieces out into the world and experiencing rejection did start feeling more personal because it was yeah right? I mean a, a a little story about a boy whose sister disappears is like I, I did put my heart into that one, but it's, mm-hmm. it's very different from sending out poetry or stories where I'm like, oh yeah, that there's there's a scene in that that comes from my life. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The one of one of the stories that I I still like want to find a home for someday, mm-hmm. but which is just really hard to send out and get rejected is like it's basically the story of my mom dying from cancer, and like that's a thing that. I sat down one day and I was like, I can't not write this story anymore. Like, this is this is part of my life and it's part of other people's lives too. Yeah. Um, and, like, being able to use art to exercise some of those demons. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, which isn't easy. No. And it's... I, I, I took a lot of theater in high school and I remember my theater teacher once saying like in in the theater you you actually always have to be in control of the emotions that you're putting out there Mm -hmm. Um, otherwise it makes the audience uncomfortable right Right. if they if they see an actor actually lose control um and i think about that a lot with writing too there there are certain pieces where i haven't sent them out yet because i i feel like i don't i kind of don't have artistic control i wrote them as you said to to work through something yeah but because of that i'm I'm not quite ready to Mm -hmm. to share it yet yeah and there is there's a line and this kind of ties back into the idea of like writing horror there's a Mm -hmm. line of discomfort that you can push readers across my partner took a workshop like a multi-week workshop with Surge standing up for racial justice mm-hmm. um, some years ago, right after the election, 
that was about it was like an exploring whiteness and anti-racism um and they brought up this idea of so you imagine a bullseye and there are three rings and the center ring is comfort and familiarity and then the next ring out is discomfort and then the ring after that is panic Mm. and that people don't learn in the inner ring or in the outer ring that you can't make progress with people when they're comfortable because... They don't think they have anything to learn. Like, right. right. And if you push people out of discomfort and into panic, they're not going to do anything because they're freaking out. Yeah. But to be able to test the edges of, of comfort without pushing into that panic space mm-hmm. is really... It's something that I don't know how to do... Like, I, I'm sure I've done it in the past, but not. it's not like a conscious thing that I know in my craft how to do that. Mm-hmm. And it really, you know, it'll differ from person to person. Like, exactly. this is why we use content warnings. For instance, mm-hmm. like, you know, a story can really impact one person in a way that it doesn't impact the next person just based on their life experiences. And that's exactly. that's okay, and that doesn't, like... It's important to be able to use art to talk about the hard things, and it's important that you keep your readers safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to not not do more harm. To yeah, someone. one of the ideas in in Aikido that I practice Aikido is that you, as a person, want to keep yourself safe, mm-hmm. but you do injury to yourself if you are aggressive to your aggressor. So there's this idea that, okay, I'm going to keep myself safe, and I'm going to put you on the floor, but I'm going to keep you safe the whole time I'm doing it. And that that takes care of me and takes care of you. And I I think a lot about that in terms of, like, when there are extremely bad takes about content warnings, (laughs) which there are so many extremely bad takes out there, that it's important to... Like, there, there are some techniques in Aikido that have an element of, like, pain compliance. Mm -hmm. But you never go past, like, you don't push into injury, you push into discomfort. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That was something I thought about a lot in my teaching. And I I also think a lot as as a writer is, you know, the the trust that people put in you when you are in that position of authority. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, that's really the most important thing to me is that I would... I would hate to make a career, you know, even if it got me gazillions of dollars as a writer, but to betray the trust of an audience mm-hmm. somehow. Um, For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we're coming towards the close of the episode. Okay. And uh, at this <laughs> point, I would like... the story. <laughs> yeah. We talked about important stuff. Mm-hmm. But at this point, uh, if we can just step into this magic blue box here uh, and use our time machine. If there was something that you could go back and tell baby writer Sharon, like something you wish you had known. I'm just interested always to hear like, what lessons have you learned that you wish you had known sooner? Yeah. Well, I I will bring up kind of the publication journey of of this story just because I think it's relevant. Oh, yeah. Because, as I said, like, first thing I wrote when I decided, like, yeah, let's try this writing thing again, sent it out, got one very quick form rejection from from Clark's World. Uh, As one does. Yeah, took the advice of, like, send it to Clark's World, they'll reject you quickly, and, like, you rip the Band-Aid off. And then sent it out again to a small press magazine that, after many months, accepted it. And Mm -hmm. I was like, great! I'm an amazing writer. Yeah. <laughs> this is awesome. Uh, and then that press folded after. So, so like from the time of sending that particular submission in to when they folded and like returned the story to me was about a year. Mm-hmm. And I'd been writing some other stuff in that time period and starting to submit. And, and that was kind of, you know, I, I did sort of run this story back out to, to multiple venues after that, but but came to a point where it was, I was like, yeah, this isn't who I am as a writer anymore. I don't, yeah. I don't really want this to be my handshake. But I think that was a lesson in patience that, mm-hmm. you know, if I could have just told baby Sharon, <laughs> like, that, that's, this is, this is going to happen to you, 
and it's it's not your fault. It's nobody's fault. Um, this is just a thing that happens. You know, on a very practical note, maybe try to submit to places that pay you on acceptance instead yep. of application. <laughs> Because uh, then at least you, you get some, some change out of it. Yeah. Um, or if they pay on publication, make sure that they're like, have a track record of getting their things out promptly. Exactly. Yeah. So that, I mean, from a logistical point of view, that's that's certainly um, kind of where the story went. I, I think I would also say, going back to that conversation about exploring identity and learning how to write the stories that only you can write out mm-hmm. of experience, I think I would tell myself not to be surprised that that comes with pain. Mm-hmm. That sometimes you accidentally unearth some trauma that mm-hmm. then, okay, got to work through through that, right? Especially, I think, for those of us who, who have identities that have been marginalized in some way or another. Mm-hmm. Like, on the, on the one hand, it can be very healing to claim that and to say, like, I don't need to write the way that a white man in the 50s right wrote in order to to like be seen and be published and be known but i think for me when i when i really started delving into the stories that i felt like only i could write it it yeah it raised a lot of pain and unresolved feelings you know about even even things like um you know i grew up in a very artistic family my dad's the storyteller in our family and he Mm -hmm. like actually you know that was always our delaying technique when we didn't want to go to bed tell us a story (laughs) Um, and his stories were all like Chinese fables and Chinese myths. Mm-hmm. And when I started kind of going like, okay, you know, I have a very specific knowledge of the Western canon that I can pull from ad nauseum, but I, I want to maybe pull from these stories of my youth and kind of realizing how much I'd lost mm-hmm. by not exploring those those stories beyond childhood and, and not, you know, like I, I had a poem placed with Uncanny in which it was just all of my feelings about the fact that I can't read or write Chinese mm-hmm. and what gets lost to me because of that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think it, it has been, uh, I wouldn't trade it for anything, but but I, I think uh, also that was something that I really just blithely set down, you know, uh-huh. set off on a path as a as a baby writer and maybe didn't realize what was waiting for me on that path um but have had incredible guides and mentors mm-hmm. as well as you know in every good hero's journey there <laughs> the teachers appear um and i've been very grateful for the beta readers and the the editors who've who've given those stories and those those poems a place mm-hmm. yeah. yeah yeah i think um yeah the the community that we have as writers is incredibly important to the journey. And that's not something like it's unfortunately not something that can be taught. No, It's something that can be to a certain extent can be gifted that you can, you know, if you know a writer who is less far down the path than you, you can invite them into your fold. And if you know a writer who is farther down the path than you, who you, like know and trust and who you like know has that sort of community you can not going to say it's going to be easy but you can say like hey what do you can you offer me anything how how did you get to the space you are because you don't necessarily want to be in a place where you are you know a baby baby not even like early career like Mm pre-professional and suddenly be shoved into a space of like mid-career writers but to be able to like you know you want to have a a spectrum and like it it is going to be a one-room schoolhouse sometimes exactly yeah um because because everybody moves at a different pace Mm -hmm. Um, and so even if you all start in the same place like you're gonna yeah and learning to keep your eyes on your own paper yeah in the sense of not comparing yourself to someone else's trajectory Mm -hmm. and and remembering that it's not a zero-sum game yeah that other people's successes and i think that's something that's so hard again because of capitalism Mm -hmm. it's so hard to unlearn the idea that like you got a poem published in uncanny and to learn like oh that's great and i'm proud of you rather than 
like, you got that, so I didn't. Right, yeah. Really embracing that idea of, like, the rising tide lifts all boats. Yeah. Um, and it's hard. There, you know, there's there aren't that many outlets that publish speculative fiction and pay pro rates. So I, I mm-hmm. get it. I've been there. I'm like, ah, you know, like... One percent acceptance rate, like, yeah, and I'm in the ninety nine percent that didn't get accepted and and feeling some kind of way about that. But I think that's also where reading broadly, um, you know, if you ever have the opportunity to be a slush reader, especially, I think. Oh my god, yes, yeah, because you then you really see, you know, there like you, you. I think then you can really internalize the feedback of like we loved this, but it didn't fit in the magazine we were putting together, or there was you know, kind of just got edged out or it's not really our voice. Right. Um, Yeah, like you can read something that you love and know that it is not the right voice for the market. Exactly, yeah. So I think, I think before I did slush reading, it was, it was kind of, not, not that I mistrusted that feedback, but Mm -hmm. I think it was much easier to accept like, oh, that, that actually, that's great feedback to get. Yeah. Like somebody loved this and they were sad that they could not purchase it. Yeah, absolutely. Mm And that is, that's just like a huge part of it. Yeah. Is, it is not an editor rejecting you. It is an editor rejecting something you wrote. And that rejection is not necessarily because it is, like sometimes it's going to be rejected because it's bad. Mm -hmm. As somebody who has slushed, I have read things that are just real bad. And that happens. Mm -hmm. And it's okay to write something that's real bad. Maybe don't send it out. Maybe put it in front of somebody's eyes who you trust first. Mm -hmm. But not everything that gets rejected is because it's bad. Sometimes something gets rejected because it has a problem Mm -hmm. that, you know, you don't know how to fix. And depending on the generosity of the slush reader, the editor, they may or may not be able to tell you what it is that went wrong. Like sometimes, sometimes it's just reading tea leaves. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and certainly I had one story that I I thought about bringing on the show, but I I think I'm not quite ready to trunk it. Mm -hmm. Um, But the feedback that I got from a couple of rounds of submission was it just starts a little too slow. Like, love the world, love the idea. But again, you don't really get into the story until like halfway through. And I haven't quite figured out how to fix that yet. But again, the generosity of editors to even, you know, give any kind of feedback um, I want to honor by... Mm -hmm. Taking that in, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you have some stories out in the world, which we can find on your website. And you also have a story coming out in, uh, or that just came out, rather. Uh, It should have just come out on December 1st in Augur, is that correct? That's correct. Um, Yeah, I have a short flash piece out with Augur called uh, Paper Incense Need. Um, And you can find that excerpted on their website and purchase the magazine that it's that it's in um i also just sold my first short story to uncanny that's fantastic which is so exciting um they've they've been very good to my work and it was a dream of mine to to place a short story with with them um and that's coming out sometime next year yeah so. <laughs> it'll it'll happen it'll publishing happen. is a thing that moves exactly yeah and you know sometimes you think oh it's so far away and then and then it's here so, yeah so yeah so uh links to works that i have published in the past and upcoming can all be found on my website and that's sharonyshu.com that is shu h-s-u correct we will also have all this information in the show notes and can you also give us a moment of time about your podcast? Because you are a fellow podcaster. Yes, yeah. Just jumping on that bandwagon with everybody <laughs> else. Um, and I will say shout out to Hillary for giving me and my um, co-host Kara some advice when we were getting ours off the ground. It was really helpful. Uh, but yeah, um, I co-host and co-produce As My Whimsy Takes Me, which is a fortnightly podcast about the... Lord Peter Whimsy mystery series by Dorothy Sayers. Um, we read the books and talk about them as both enormous fans <laughs> and also, you know, our joke is between me and Karis, we have two and a half English degrees, so we, we do put on a critical eye every now and then about, like, oh yeah, this is, this is 
this part did not age very well. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you can find us on the internet at WhimsyPod is our handle on Twitter and Insta and so forth. And then the website is asmywhimsytakesme.com. That's whimsy spelled W-I-M-S-E-Y. Excellent. That's awesome. And uh, I will heartily recommend this podcast, even as somebody who has not really consumed much Sayers, that uh, your conversations are really excellent. And I'm really glad to have been able to offer the small bits of advice that I did to help get your show off the ground. So, WhimsyPod on Twitter, and you are Penzif on Twitter? I am, yeah. P-E-N-S-Y-F. It was a pun <laughs> back in the day before as, I thought about branding myself. <laughs> as all good things tend to be. Yeah, yeah. Well, Sharon, so, so glad to have you on the show once again. Uh, really appreciate your being here, making the time to uh, walk a couple of blocks and... I maybe came off joking when I said neighbor, but, like, we live less than half a mile from each other. It's pretty fantastic. It's awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, and uh, just really happy to be in the same neighborhood. Yeah. Thank you so much. Tales from the Trunk is mixed and produced in beautiful East Oakland, California. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash trunkcast. All patrons of the show now get a logo button, along with show outtakes and other content that can't be found anywhere else. You can find the show on Twitter at TrunkCast, and I tweet at HBBisniex. If you like the show, consider taking a moment to rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. And remember, don't self-reject.